0: And tonight I want to talk to you directly from the heart of God on finding hope in hopelessness. Finding hope in hopelessness. Look, the reality is that we've all been there. Where we have a hope, we look forward with confidence. But you know, life happens. Waves of, of situations happen. And, and uh, you know, I would just ask you to think about, have you ever had a wave of hopelessness wash over you? Have you ever felt like, wow, you know, I, I don't know how this is going to work out, right? It kind of sounds like, well, what if this doesn't work, right? It sounds like, well, what if this, what if things don't change, right? What if we don't make it, right? What if? And I want to point your attention tonight to a portion in Scripture. We've been in the series that we started this past Sunday talking about don't be a Grinch. And I want to kind of pick up where we left off on the Grinch because, and I won't talk too much about the Grinch, but one thing that I, I find interesting about this Grinch is that um, he was a lonely character, right? Lonely and uh, very sour about everything. Um, very grouchy. And the reality is that he had no hope. He saw no, no hope. And I think that we've all, we can all relate to that. So the scriptures record a time where after a 400-year span of the people of God, the people of Israel not hearing from the Lord, not hearing a prophecy, that the heavens opened up, and that silence was broken as God brought forth a message. He said, peace on all the earth and among men. And he declared that hope had arisen he announced the birth of Jesus that had taken place. And it ignited hope in many, but it also, there were also many who, while they heard of this hope of the birth of the Messiah, the Christ, they remained without hope. You know, at the birth of Jesus, the scriptures revealed that Mary and Joseph, they did according to what the law called for. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day, And then shortly thereafter, they went to the temple to present him before the Lord and to, you know, render the required offerings according to the law. And while they were doing this, there was a man who had been living with the hope of seeing the Christ. This man knew what all Israel was going through in that he understood we're not hearing from God. And it wasn't that God was silent per se, because his promises are true. It wasn't that he wasn't present. And so this man was living with this hope in the midst of this hopelessness. And the scripture says that then he saw Christ. I want us to turn in the scriptures so that we can see what, the, what we can pull from the scriptures here tonight. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25, says that a man named Simeon lived in Jerusalem. And he was a good man. A good man who was devoted to God. And he was waiting for the time when God would come to help Israel. Now watch this. He understood how God would help Israel. The Holy Spirit was with him. Verse 26. The Holy Spirit told him that he would not not die before he saw the Messiah from the Lord. And the Spirit led Simeon to the temple. And so he was there when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to do what the Jewish law said they must do. And Simeon, Simeon took this baby in his hands, in his arms. And the scripture says that he thanked God. Amen. And then he declared this, Now, Lord, you can let me die. You can let me, your servant, die in peace as you said. For I have seen with my own eyes how you will save your people. On. Amen. Yeah. Wow. He goes on to say, Now all people can see your plan it's right here you have come in the form of a man right here says he is a light to show your way to other nations and he will bring honor to your people Israel and Jesus's father and mother were amazed at, at what Simeon said about him and the then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary many Jews will fall and many will rise Because of this boy, he will be a sign from God that some will not accept. Now, like all Israel, Simeon had heard the prophecies of old that were concerning the coming of Jesus into the world. But you see, Simeon was different than most in Israel because Simeon did not give up. Simeon held on in hope despite the disobedience, the the hardness of heart, the, the, the downhill spiral that Israel had gone in. Simeon held on with hope. It remained intact, his hope, because he knew something that most didn't. He knew something that most don't today. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 puts it this way. It says, may the God of hope do what? Fill Fill you, watch this, with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want us to keep that scripture up for a moment. And I want you to consider what the scripture says. God's will is that we would live with an abundance of hope. That we would live with hope and that that hope would be founded in a joy that goes beyond our circumstances, Mm, that goes beyond our possessions, that goes beyond what people say, that goes beyond our feelings. Friends, how many of you know that joy based on people is not joy at all? Because it comes and goes. Listen, I know some of you mamas are going, "Oh, oh, my children always bring me joy. Yeah, right. You know what I'm talking about. We all know what I'm talking about. See, joy, based on anything but Christ, is fickle. It fluctuates. It vacillates. It doesn't work in the long run. But there is a joy, friends, there is a hope that comes from Christ, from God Himself, and And this hope fills us with all joy and peace. See, God wants us to overflow with hope because he he desires that we have joy and peace. So I have to pose a question to you. I want you to consider with me this question, and I want us to be honest. How's your hope tank? How's your joy tank? Do you fluctuate in your joy? Are you up and down? This way, that way. Some days I'm high, some days I'm low. Some days I'm eh. Because friends, the hope of Christ does not fluctuate. It remains the same. The scripture says this, that we now have this hope, right? And it tells us that this hope is an anchor to the soul. Now you know what's interesting about anchors Anchors are always beneath the surface. You can't see them, but they hold you down. And friends, you and I, according to the scriptures, have this hope that is in Christ. It is Christ in us, the hope of God's glory. You know what the scripture is saying when it says that? When it says that we have this hope, that it says that we have Christ in us, which is the hope of glory, it's talking about we have a hope that literally leads us to the place where we see God in his fullness magnified, completely, and so friend, if you're fluctuating in your hope and your joy, God didn't move, we did, God, God remains the same, now and forever, right? Which leads me to this point, and it's that hope is not a feeling. Hope is not a feeling, friends. According to what we just read in Romans 15, and I mean, I can give you a bunch more scripture. I'm just trying to keep this simple. Hope is not a feeling. Hope is a perpetual life experience because hope, the hope that we have in Christ, does not change. But we change. Therefore, it's important that we understand how to maintain our hope, even when we feel hopeless. I was reminded today when I saw this guy, Robert, man. I, I was telling my wife as soon as I got home, I said, th- there, was, there was a moment where, you know, I, I told him what the doctors had said, and I told him, I'm good, man. I'm doing great. And he said to me, I wish that was me. And at that moment, what I did, right there, a bunch of people all around us, I, I said, Robert, I just put my hand on his chest and I said to him, there was one scripture amongst many that was a rock to me. And I was remembering one particular day when I was in the hospital that I literally could not breathe. Like literally. Even with tubes in my nose and all these treatments they were giving me and all these pumps and all the stuff they were trying to do I I could not breathe and I felt at that moment like I just couldn't make it like I I, I really felt like I wasn't going to make it and in that moment I was talking to the Lord and I remember a scripture that rose up in me that I had been reading which was Job 33.4 where Job says this, Job is in affliction Mm -hmm. but I believe that the reason why Job came out of his affliction is because Job, while he was jacked up in some of his understanding, he understood God rightly in this. In Job 33, 4, Job says this, You are the God who made me, and you gave me the breath of life. And that was a scripture in the midst of hopelessness that reminded me, These lungs and this breath and this life is not my own. You gave it to me, Lord. And if you gave me breath of life, then you created me to breathe. And, and at that moment, I remember my lungs just opened, and I just began to breathe. And so in that moment when I was talking with Robert, I put my hand on his chest and I was sharing with him Job 33, 4. And I just began to pray for him. And even during worship, I was just remembering him. And I was just praying, Lord, you are the one that quickens our mortal bodies. You are the one that enlightens us to the truth. You are the one that reminds us that your great and precious promises, your answer to them is yes. And amen. You are the one who declares that it is your will that we prosper and that we be in health in all things. As our soul prospers, and I was praying for him, prosper him in his soul. Help him see you for who you are, God. And I just began to speak over his lungs. And Man, I don't even know if he's watching or not, but I just pray healing. And I thank God for what he's already done for Robert. <laughs> but, uh, see, friends, Hallelujah. what brought me through wasn't doctors. Right. What brought me through was hope. And it wasn't just my hope. It was the hope of many in this room and many that are part of this family here at Church at the Bridge. Um, It made a difference. And so our hope does not leave us helpless, but we have to remember that our hope is not a feeling. It is a perpetual life experience. In other words, it's meant to continuously be at work in our lives, right? And so I want to share with you just a couple of quick things before we take communion about how we can overflow with hope. And I want to point your attention to one portion of scripture, just one. And then I want to give you some things to think about. Romans 12:12 12, 12 says this: Be joyful in hope. Joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. And be faithful in prayer. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The first point that I want to propose to you for reflection, but also for application, and I, I really do pray that you do something with the Word of God tonight, is that you and I must stay focused on the future. Yes. Stay focused on the future. What am I talking about here? You know, when the, when the scriptures uh, use the term here, joyful in hope, It's talking about a joy that leads us to great expectation because of our faith. In other words, it reveals something to us. It reminds us. It points us in a direction beyond the present. And for some of us, if we're there, it has the power to pull us out of the past, it points us forward. And what I love about this is that the reason why hope is so important is because it helps us shift from the past and present into the future. Can I just encourage somebody's heart? Maybe you're here, maybe online. You can't do anything about the past. How many of you believe that? You can't do anything about the past. I know some of you think you're like uh, Marty McFly that you could go back And then into the future, no, it's not going to happen. You can't go backwards, right? You can't do anything about the past, and there are times when the reality is we can't do anything about the present. But you know, hope reminds us about what God makes possible as we press towards the future. Hope gives us a confident expectation of what is to come, right? Now, regret if you're looking backwards is a waste of time why because you can't build on regret you can't accomplish anything with regret the only thing you can do is wallow in it and for those of you that maybe you might struggle with hope in the present let me just put it to you this way worry is a waste of time worry is a waste of time I'm gonna say that one more time worry is a waste of time why Because worry is an attempt to take responsibility for something that we have no control over. Worry is us taking the place of God. I'll prove it to you. Jesus said, why do you worry? Why, why, Why are you worrying? Doesn't my Father in heaven provide for the birds of the air? Doesn't he dress the lilies of the field? Why are you worried? Of how much more value are you than they? Right? And so worry robs us of our worship. Worry robs us of what God can do. See, worry is a thief. But it's theft by our own hands. Because we're the ones worrying. Right? But you see, being joyful in hope turns hopelessness into hope because it helps us see the best in the midst of the worst of circumstances. I want to look to the life of Jesus, our Lord, as an example from Hebrews chapter 12. Starting at verse 2, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Right? The pioneer and the perfecter. The author, the finisher of our faith. The first and the last. For the joy that is set before him, he endured the cross. Now watch this. Get this picture. He's on the cross. And while he is Christ and he is God, the scripture tells us that he fully submitted himself to this flesh. In other words, he underwent everything that we do. He felt those nails. He felt those whips. He felt the ridicule. He endured pain. So get this picture. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What the scripture is telling us here is that while Christ is on the cross, he was in joy. Now I know some of us are saying, yeah, that's Jesus. That's not me. Watch this. Watch how. Watch how. Because let me remind you, That the scripture tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot relate to us. But he underwent everything that we underwent. And he overcame it. The reason why he overcame is because he wants us to overcome. Thus the scripture says, as Jesus is in this world, so are we. In other words, we can employ the same tactic that he used on the cross. So it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And watch what he did. He scorned its shame. In other words, if you look at this in the Greek, what it's saying is that the shame that he endured, the ridicule, the mocking, the hate, the, the, everything that was hurled at him, everything that he endured, he, he looked at it and it was no big deal to him. He scorned the shame. For some of you, you understand it this way. I eat those. Right? I eat those. Right? I got that. Right? Now watch what verse 3 says. Consider him who endured such great opposition from sinners. Watch this. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When the scripture tells us to consider him who endured, it's saying... Consider how he did it and follow that example, which leads me to this point that we must think about. Jesus saw the best in the worst of circumstances. He saw the best in the worst of circumstances. Friend, that's why you're still standing. That's That's why you're still making it. That's why even on your worst day, you always find yourself better off. It may take some time. You may have to undergo some things. You may have to surpass some challenges along the way, but you're good because you serve the God who is good, and he does all things for your good according to his riches and glory. He works all things out. He's always working. Now, you know, it's interesting. Science tells us that we process roughly uh, 11 million bits of information every second. That blows my mind. Now, the thing is, we don't see how fast things are happening, but everything from the way your eye is reflecting refracting light to how your lungs are responding to the environment around you, to uh, all your sensory nerves, everything, all these things, your body is receiving all these signals, all this information. But science says that the human brain can only process 40 bits of that information per second. That's that's very interesting, I'll tell you why. Because from those 40 bits of information per second, our brains begin to construct what we perceive, what we understand, how we see things. This is why two people can perceive the same thing differently. Right? You might see a glass half empty, while you might see a glass half full. You might see the end of the world while you might see an opportunity. You might see this is a bad day and you might see this is the beginning of the day and it's going to get better. Right? And so what's interesting about this is that this information that we collect without even realizing it, we collect all this different data and we construct remarkably different pictures. And while we can't control the information around us, per se, right, by and large, we can control what we focus on. Mm. Mm. We really can. Mm. I'll prove it to you. You ever... Uh, I, I remember I, uh, the truck that I have, I... I I had, I had seen it a while back, right, when I first, before I first got it, and up until that point, I had never noticed this truck, right? But all of a sudden, I began, I, I saw this truck, and I was like, ooh, I, I, I want that truck. So I began to save, and I began to, you know, kind of put my ducks in a row. But now that this truck was in my purview, right, all of a sudden, I began to notice all these similar trucks all around me. It's like, I didn't know so many people had this truck, right? The thing is, the information was always there. They were always there. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. There is nothing new under the sun. It's always there. But you know how, how it becomes a part of our focus when we begin to center our attention upon it. So let me, let me bring this back to what we're talking about here. We're talking about hope. In the face of hopelessness. You know, there's always something good in the midst of bad. That's true of you and me, you know that? You know the joy that Jesus saw? He saw sinners. But what he saw was sinners that could become saints. What he saw was us at our worst but he said, yeah, but there's something worth redeeming there. There's beauty there. There's power there. There's a family in the making there. There's good there. So you see, we would be wise to choose to look for the best in circumstances instead of just jumping to the worst. You know, sometimes we we just kind of just, we could be just so pessimistic, right? But I'll tell you where pessimism comes from. It comes from where you've been setting your attention. If you, if, you, if you can truly identify with yourself, I'm not saying that you have to tell me but if you see in yourself, you know, I'm a pessimist by nature. No. What you are is someone who by nature is drawn to listen to negativity as opposed to seeking out new information. Right? You've got to see the best because there's a God who's always good and has the best for you. Amen? Second thing I want to encourage you with for reflection and application is here is that remember that problems are temporary. Remember that problems are temporary. You know, when we have problems, sometimes we can get to the place of hopelessness. Hopelessness is simply just giving up on a possibility for the future. It's giving up on something better. It's just laying down and saying, I give up and I succumb to whatever this story, this negativity, these these problems are. Right? But you see, that's not a recipe for life. See, according to what we read, now remember we heard be joyful in hope. Be patient, right? In affliction, right? And so patience is all about the process. Mm. Patience is the tool to get us through. Would you agree? Yes. Patience is meant to get us through. Yes. And I want to point your attention, uh, your attention to a very familiar passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah 40, 31. It says, but those who what? Wait, wait, wait. right? Yes. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture to many people. But have you ever thought about what the Scripture is actually saying when it says that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, specifically that they shall mount up with wings like eagles. It's not talking about flying like eagles, friends. It's actually talking about a process that eagles undergo called molting. And what molting basically is, is eagles go through about five different seasons throughout their lifespan of about 30 years or so that they, that they exist. And each time they go through this molting process, here's what happens. Their feathers begin to fall out. Their beaks become calcified. In other words, they grow extra bone. And their head becomes heavy. Their eyes grow weak. Their talons begin to fall. Right? And 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 they and they just can't fly. They're like a chicken. They're grounded. But what's interesting is that the scripture tells us that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And this strength is likened to that of the eagle. Meaning that as we endure the process of patience, watch what happens. You begin to grow a new layer of coding, you begin to develop strength that you did not have, you are stronger, right? You are equipped to go further, farther, higher. And if you're gonna be like an eagle, according to the scripture, when storms come, you learn to fly above them instead of stay in them. My point with this is simply this, that we can be patient Because the process leads us out of the problem. Friend, you want to stay hopeful in the midst of hopelessness? Be patient in the process. Be patient. The scripture puts it this way. Endure. Endure. It doesn't mean that you give up, it doesn't mean that you lay down. It's interesting, but when the scripture talks about those who wait on the Lord, that's not talk, that, is, that doesn't even depict someone sitting. It's actually the opposite. Think of it this way. When you go to a really good restaurant, right, like our friends and family night when we serve people, Amen. right, here's what you have is you have a whole bunch of waiters. And you know what waiters do here? Waiters serve. Waiters act. Waiters look for the opportunity to to jump in. Waiters are action-oriented. Those that wait upon the Lord are in the process of renewing their strength. They are not giving up. They are continuing to look forward. They are standing on the promises of God. They are acting upon the truth. They are not laying down. Friend... Be patient in the process. Oh my God. Yes. Endure. But if you're going to endure, wait. Wait correctly. Amen? The last point I want to leave you with here is that we should be aggressive in prayer. That's right. Yes, I said be aggressive. Like be very aggressive in prayer. Right? So remember, the scripture says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And it's interesting because faithfulness in prayer isn't simply just continuing to pray. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Faithfulness in prayer is actually steadfastness. It is an aggressive persistence. Now, the scripture has given us an example of this in the book of Luke through a parable that Jesus shares about a widow. And this widow in the parable is going to the judge in her vicinity, in her district, whatever you want to call it. She goes to this judge, and the scripture says that this judge is unjust. But she won't give up. She continually goes to this judge, and she presents her case before him persistently, persistently, persistently. And she's seeking justice against her adversary. She's seeking an answer. She's seeking, she's seeking uh, the intervention uh, to her plea. Now, remember, I said be aggressive in prayer. Let me quote the words of Jesus as it pertains to what he was talking about. Prayer. About persistent prayer. Prayer about effective prayer. Luke 18, 5, he says, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, right, in this parable, Mm -hmm. he says, I will see that she gets justice, watch this, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. My God, my God. You know what he's depicting through this parable? This is someone who understands that prayer is a fight but it's a fight that's worth it. I'm going to get... I can't give up. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep standing on the promises. I'm going to continue to look forward. See, this woman did not give up. If you study this out, what you'll see is that she knew where to get her answer from. Watch this. Luke 18.1 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable. He's introducing this parable that I was just alluding to. He, sh- he, uh, he told his disciples a parable to show them that they should, how much? How often? Oh, Always nice. pray. Watch this. And not give up. You know what aggressive prayer looks like? I can't quit. I won't quit. I won't quit. See, prayer is not the last resort, friend. It's always our first option. And therefore, we should pray aggressively. Jesus likened this woman's prayer to a woman who was ready to attack. Jesus put it this way when he was referring to how people were responding to the gospel as John announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. He says, And the kingdom of God suffers violence. And the violent, they take it by force. He wasn't talking about people being violent against the gospel. He was talking about people who had this attitude that says, I have to have it at all costs. Friends, Hope, hope is our confident expectation of a God who is good, a God who has already promised and declared that his answer to every single promise is yes and amen, yes and so be it.